Our reading this morning is from author Jan Richardson, and Peggy Homer will be reading our reading. It is a blessing in a time of violence. Blessing in a time of violence, which is to say this blessing is always, which is to say there is no place this blessing does not long to cry out in lament, to weep its words in sorrow, to scream its lines in sacred rage, which is to say there is no day this blessing ceases to whisper into the ear of the dying, the despairing, the terrified, which is to say there is no moment this blessing refuses to sing itself into the heart of the hated and the hateful, the victim and the victimizer, with every last ounce of hope it has. Which is to say, there is none that can stop it, none that can halt its course, none that will still its cadence, none that will delay its rising, none that can keep it from springing forth from the mouths of us who hope, from the mouths of us who act from the hearts of us who love, from the feet of us who will not cease our stubborn aching, marching, marching, until this blessing has spoken its final word, until this blessing has breathed its benediction in every place, in every tongue. Peace, peace, peace. I love you. I know other ministers have said this, said this from this pulpit, but I want to join in their, their chorus. This is my first time with you all in about a month, and I love you. It's good to be together. And because I love you, I want to remind all of us that beautiful and terrible things are happening right now, and that you are not alone. So this past May, on an unseasonably hot 90-degree day, I sat on the edge of a dusty trench in West Roxbury, and I was wearing a full suit and sweating through the suit as I sat in the sun, with black socks on on this 90-degree day and an extra cardigan and a small bag over my shoulder, because I knew that the jail cell would be cold. And I sat with 15 other clergy wearing suits and stoles and collars and robes and talits and kippahs, and one person in full historical Minuteman regalia, all singing refrains of the tide is rising and so are we, and praying prayers for frontline communities and future generations, and waiting to be arrested. Many of you know that I was arrested twice this spring in, and early summer once with our friend Matt Meyer here, as part of pipeline protests around the construction of the West Roxbury Lateral Pipeline, which runs into Boston despite protests from local and state government. And the pipeline runs through West Roxbury right next to an active blasting quarry, leaving the surrounding neighborhoods at risk for explosions and creating new fossil fuel infrastructure when we know that fossil fuels are contributing to climate change and when we know that we have the technology to create greener infrastructure. 
Over the past year, about 200 people were arrested through nonviolent civil disobedience related to this pipeline. So on Wednesday of this week, when I got to church, I found this picture on my desk, a clipping from the Boston Globe, and it was left for me, I assume, by one of you. Thank you to whoever cut this out for me. It says, you can see right in the corner, I'm sitting on the trench, and it says, you can't see the whole title, but it says, despite protests, just at the top. But I knew which article this was from. The full article was published last week in the Globe, and it says, West Roxbury pipeline to open, sorry, West Roxbury pipeline to open despite protests. By the time I arrived to find this clipping on my desk on Wednesday, I had already known that the West Roxbury lateral pipeline was about to begin pumping gas from, and putting, was about to begin putting homes and families at further risk. And the truth is, when I first heard the news, I wasn't totally surprised. I kind of had a like, eh, I, I guess I figured reaction. And I'm not sure, the truth is, I'm not sure that I ever thought we would really stop the pipeline. Even after the Keystone XL pipeline had been stopped about a year before, I thought, there are just too many fights that we don't win. But I didn't doubt for a moment that I wanted to be part of the fight and that I wanted to be part of the movement to resist it. I heard from an organizer colleague of mine, another one of our housemates, that the CEO of Spectra Energy said, the company that's building the pipeline said something to the effect of, you know, we've never had a five-mile length of pipeline that was so hard to build as in West Roxbury, and warned other energy executives about the organized oppositions in the Northeast. So there were some wins there, to be sure, but still this month, fracked gas started running through the pipeline. Beautiful and terrible things are happening. So then I think of another pipeline. You might have heard of this one, running through North Dakota, the Dakota Access Pipeline. Another very controversial pipeline, and the proposed plans are to run the pipeline through the Standing Rock, Sioux, Ancestral, and Treaty lands under the Missouri River, which will contaminate drinking water for millions, threatening to break treaties that our US government made with the Dakota, Nakota, and Lakota nations in 1851. As thousands have set up camp at Standing Rock despite harsh weather conditions and despite militarized police presence and despite being tear gassed and shot with rubber bullets and treated in degrading ways upon arrest, despite being sprayed with water cannons in sub-freezing temperatures, despite all of this, the water protectors and their allies declare, Mine Wichoni, water is life. There have been calls to support Standing Rock by, made by the elders of the tribe, and calls for more media attention, calls for financial support, for supplies, for putting pressure on government agencies to do what they can to change the situation. 
And exactly a week ago, this past Sunday, the same day as the National Day of Prayer and the same day that thousands of US veterans arrived at Standing Rock to join the water protectors, news broke that the Army Corps of Engineers, which has been granting permits for the project, denied the final easement needed to build the pipeline through this ancestral land and was suspending the project until further environmental studies could be done. But Energy Transfer Partners, the company that is building this pipeline, says that they are committed to opening the pipeline whatever it takes, that they have investors counting on them after all. And so I don't know what will happen next at Standing Rock. I do know that the camps are celebrating this as a victory and they are also saying that they will not move until the construction equipment has gone home until they are assured that their ancestral burial grounds will not be disturbed. Because they know that the fight continues and they know that the pipeline could still get built and that energy transfer partners will likely only be fined if that happens. That energy transfer partners might decide that this is just the cost of doing business and disregard the permit. It hasn't happened yet, but it is possible. And so the water protectors ask those who would, like, would stand with them, will you continue to fight and pray with us? And yet they celebrate their victories along the way, and we celebrate with them and continue to pray. People, myself included, love to quote Unitarian minister Theodore Parker, who said that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it, but it bends toward justice. And this weekend, I was at a conference where somebody bravely admitted that she didn't know if this was true or not. And I, surprised, felt tears spring to my eyes because it was so vulnerable and so real, and these words spoke a truth to me. What if the arc of justice, arc of the universe does not bend toward justice? And I look around me and I could see so much evidence that supports either claim, the bending or the not bending. Beautiful and terrible things are happening right now in the world. In these apocalyptic, meaning uncovered, times. After the election, I was finishing rereading the Harry Potter series and I kept saying to people, I kept saying, I'm just going to keep reading these books because I know that evil doesn't win in the end. And it was a little sarcastic, but it also had this kernel of truth. And by evil, I want to be very clear, I do not mean a specific person. I mean the evil that is white supremacy, and I mean the evil that is misogyny normalized, and I mean the evil that is the Islamophobic notes sent to our Muslim neighbors in Wayland and in Boston and the hateful notes and swastikas drawn on bathroom doors and garages, spray painted on buildings, and children telling other children that they hope they get deported, even though we know that nobody leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. And the evil that is children afraid that their parents will be gone disappeared when they get home from school. What if the arc of the universe is not bending toward justice? 
What I struggle with when I looked down in that quote is not the quote itself, but the space that it leaves for us to believe that the ark will bend of its own volition, as if it will happen regardless of what we do, as if it's predetermined. I don't know whether the ark is really bending or not because it is beyond the horizon and I cannot see that far. But I do know that the systems and ideologies of better than and power over are so strong and so rigid that the ark will not bend unless our love and our strength is stronger and more organized than those ideologies of evil. But it is not a given, that I know. Vaclav Havel says that hope is definitely not the same thing as optimism. It is not the conviction, he says, that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense regardless of how it will turn out. It is also this hope above all, he says, which gives us the strength to live and continually try new things, even in conditions that seem as hopeless as ours do here and now. And Reverend Dr. Miguel de la Torre, a Latin American liberation theologian and professor of social ethics, takes a slightly different approach when he says, if it's totally hopeless and nothing will change, you do what you do not because you know you're going to win, but because you have no other choice. I do what I do because it defines my very humanity. De la Torre notes that hope can be used by those with privilege to excuse inaction and believes that embracing hopelessness, becoming grounded in hopelessness, as my friend Elizabeth would say, allows us to decouple the worthiness of our actions and our calling from the likelihood of our success. De La Torre's words again, he says, to embrace hopelessness means, that accepting, means accepting the reality that sin, evil, and death trumps our hope for utopias especially accepting the reality of how white hatred manifests itself among the marginalized and the oppressed. To embrace hopelessness means engaging in survival praxis, knowing the battle might be lost, but fighting anyway because there exists no other choice. To embrace hopelessness means regardless of how the story ends, the struggle for justice is what defines my very humanity. Or in the words of Lin-Manuel Miranda, for all you Hamilton fans out there, I may not live to see the glory, but I will gladly join the fight. Regardless of how the story ends, the struggle for justice is what defines our very humanity. So struggle anyway. I heard Brene Brown, who researches vulnerability, speak last week, and she said something to the effect that religious leaders, meaning all of us, Religious leaders are often compelled to tell people, it's going to be okay, we have the right answers, follow us, and we'll show you the way. Certainty is easier, she says, it doesn't require much vulnerability. It is much harder, she says, but more authentic for leaders to say, I don't have the answers, I don't know how the story ends, but I will invite you into the mystery and the darkness 
and the questions and the fear, and I'll walk with you in it. I think this message is for all of us, not just those of us who preach on Sunday. All of us called to be prophets and healers of this world, all called to say to one another, I don't have the answers. I don't know how the story ends, but I'll walk with you in the mystery and the struggle. Friends, have you heard the phrase, love wins? It's a universalist message that's gained some momentum, I think, in the past few years from author Rob Bell, and I know that I say this sometimes too. And I'm wondering, similar to my questions about the ark, if love doesn't always win. Maybe spiritually it does, perhaps in God's eyes it does, but not always in ways that make people's material realities better. Sometimes hate does take away people's rights. Sometimes children from their parents or deports our siblings who got into legal trouble that they might never have been prosecuted for if they were white or literally kills people because of their skin. Love wins and the arc bends toward justice sometimes feels just too optimistic for me in these times. Without action, these phrases embody the sin of ahistorical optimism erasing the history of thousands of years of cultural devastation and colonialism and genocide committed largely by people whose skin looks like mine. Love might not always win and things might not always be okay because as author Jan Richardson says, the world is always ending somewhere for someone. So these days, I'm feeling tired of people telling me that I should remember that the arc of history, the arc of the universe, will bend toward justice. Right now, I'm tired of hearing progressive people optimistically cite some wins without recognizing that our world is still today in a dire state, that beautiful and terrible things are happening, that hate still wants to take hold, and that hate is still fighting hard to win. And friends, I'm a little tired and I'm scared. I'm scared of all the hate that has been uncovered and given license, and I'm scared about what comes next, and I don't have all the answers, but we can walk together in the darkness. Friends, we are in a time when hope is not enough, but I think the reality is that hope alone has never been enough. And I would love to listen to your hope, but only if you will promise that you will do one thing, which is tell me What are you going to do with your hope? So please, in the receiving line, please tell me about your hope, but do not simply tell me what you hope for. Do not tell me what you believe about the trends of history. Instead, tell me about the ways in which you are fighting harder with love. Tell me about the commitments you have made recently. I want to hear what you are doing and what you are willing to do to make those commitments happen. I want to hear how you have answered the call, not just what you think the call is, how you have been more brave than you thought you could be, because I know you are, how you have done what you were scared to do because you knew it was the right thing, 
I want to hear how you have held on to your humanity when it felt like it was against the odds, how you have felt called to a purpose that is larger than yourself. Don't tell me that you believe in the ark. Tell me how you are shaping the ark. Those are the things that I want to hear. You can call it active hope, or you can call it being grounded in hopelessness. I sometimes think we are parsing words here. What I want to know is this. Will you walk with me in the struggle and in the not knowing how the story ends? Will you struggle for justice because we are not assured of a win, but because we know it is our very humanity that calls us to do that? Will you do that with me? And will you put all of your weight behind bending the ark? Because friends, I believe there is another truth. That love is still here in this room, still here in this world against so many odds. That we are called to choose love and choose justice even when we think it might not win. Because our souls will wither without it. And because we have a hand in shaping that ark. So let us act together on our love and our humanity, even when it means surrendering our certainty of the outcomes. And in doing so, may we breathe new hope into being. Because we aren't about optimistic outcomes, but we might be about hope when it compels us to act, and we are for sure about acting in ways that define our collective humanity. May it be so, and amen. <laughs>